We've come to question 42 in the Shorter Catechism. And it's, we're, we're presently in the section where we're looking at our duty to God, as you know. In particular, we're looking at our moral duty, which is what the Catechism talks about first. The duty that was given to us, not originally in written form, but in our God-given innate sense of right and wrong. We didn't need it in a written form because it was in our hearts before the fall. But before the fall, God, God was pleased, or, or after the fall, God was pleased to give it to us in a written form, summarized in the Ten Commandments and in the various commandments and laws, moral laws that are scattered about throughout the Bible. We saw that in revealing it, God presented himself in a way that terrified the people, reminding them that he was holy and that they were sinners. The people needed to see that they were lawbreakers who could not dwell with God apart from his saving work, which was portrayed in the ordinances of the tabernacle that God appointed at the time he gave the Ten Commandments. Very important to see that those were given at the same time. You had the moral law and then the, the fearful presentation of it that makes people realize, wow, we need cover, we need atonement, we need forgiveness. And then you have all the washings and the cleansings and the atoning sacrifices. So uh, there to, to be no pretenses that we're somehow righteous in ourselves. God has never allowed his people to, to think that way. The law, if rightly understood, shows us our sin and guides us into how we're to live as God's redeemed people who obey his commandments and who rely on his redemptive mercy and grace. It's very important to understand this. You cannot be right with God on the basis of your own works. You have to come to Jesus who is crucified for forgiveness, and you have to come to him to represent you as the righteous one before the Father. You come with a sincere desire to keep the commandments, but full recognition that you come short and you continually rely on Jesus Christ to come to our holy God. I also showed you last week that the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law. And as a summary, they help remind us of whole categories of obedience. You're to receive them, the commandments, in all of their fullness. The commandments are to be unpacked. They're they're tightly, they, they have lots and lots to them, packed into them, and they're to be opened up and unpacked into our lives in all their fullness, not taken in as narrow a way as possible so that you can say, from my youth up, I have kept all your commandments. You know, when we just do it in a superficial way, like I never, thou shalt not kill. Oh, I've never done that. That sort of thing. So, for example, when you look at that commandment, you don't look at it only as saying, don't take someone else's life, but also as it comes from God, it speaks to our, our hatred of others or not wanting others around or showing malice toward them even speaking disdainfully of them. And you should look at a commandment we saw last week, a commandment that forbids something, is also requiring the contrary thing, the opposite thing to what it, what it prohibits. 
For example, we looked at the example of uh, if you're told not to steal, then that doesn't just mean to stop stealing. It also means that you should start laboring with your hands diligently to, to do your work and provide for yourself and others and to be a blessing to others and then to give. If you're not in a situation where you're doing that, you're really still a thief. Uh, as Jay Adams used to say about it, you're just a thief between jobs. Because thieves don't steal all the time, do they? They go out and do their job. They, they steal and then they, they, they get, get tired of whatever they have and then they go out and steal again. And uh, if you haven't learned how to work and provide for yourself, you haven't really come to what God has called you to be. As those who are redeemed, it should be our desire to have all of the commandments in this full way, as I have said to you, to fill every nook and cranny of your life. We are forgiven and we have no need to play games and pretend like we're righteous. Why do we do that all the time? Why, why do we do that? You know, somebody, somebody points something out to us and it's legitimate, it's wrong. We start defending ourselves. Why? why? You know, we were forgiven. We have forgiveness. We don't have to defend ourselves. I know sometimes we may be falsely accused. But what about when we're not? Many times there's a legitimacy to what is said. And yet we, we, we want to avoid it. We don't have that hunger for wanting God to speak into our lives and show us how we need to change. So instead of resisting the commandments, we need to welcome and embrace all that they have to say to us. Well, let's confess together the question that we looked at last week that speaks about this, about the moral law and the, the Ten Commandments. It's a question 41. It says, where is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law. But did you know that there is a summary of the summary? (laughs) The Ten Commandments are a summary, but there's a summary of that summary. A summary of the Ten Commandments. And it's uh, the subject for today. Question 42. Let's confess this question today. Question 42. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. We know for certain that this is a proper summary because Jesus told us that it was a summary of the whole law. This this wasn't made up by the guys that did the catechism. This was something that is shown us by Jesus. So for our scripture reading, I have chosen a passage that presents this to us it's Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40. This is the day when the Jewish leaders were coming and trying to stump Jesus with their questions. I always refer to it as Stump Jesus Day. They were coming and loading him with all of these questions that he was all able to answer them all and ended up stumping them in many cases. Um, he answered a particular question that was posed by the Pharisees and the Herodians and uh, another by the Sadducees, we pick up on uh, with a third question that he had, which is Matthew twenty-two thirty-four, by a man that was a, a lawyer or a scribe. So give me your attention as I read this to you from God's holy word, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, Ask him a question, testing him and saying, 
Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his holy and infallible word. According to our Lord, the whole, our whole life is to be about loving God and loving others. In Matthew twenty-two forty, he says that the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, to love God with all and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The law and the prophets is a phrase that refers to the entire Old Testament. Jesus is telling us that all that they said, that the law and the prophets say, is to help us grow the, in the commandment to, to love God and to love others. Okay, all of their commandments come together in, in those matters. You might think of God's commandments, the, these two great commandments, all of God's commandments, maybe I should say, as a tree. And the root of the tree is the commandment to love God, and the trunk of the tree is the commandment to love your neighbor. The branches are all of the other commandments and the teachings of the law and the prophets. What happens to a tree if it has no roots and no trunk? Then the branches are not in good shape. They will all fall to the ground and they will be devoid of life-giving nourishment. Love is the thing that is to go through all. Without love, all the commandments and teachings fall to the ground and wither. They're completely dead and completely lifeless. The Ten Commandments must be upheld and supplied by love. Take the first commandment as an example. It tells you to have no other gods besides the true God. What must be at the root of that commandment if you're to keep it in the right way? Well, of course, it must grow out of a love for God. You, your love for him that would make you recoil from treating someone else as God. If you're like a wife who sticks with her husband but who hates him, you may have, maybe true enough that you don't have any other husbands, but that's hardly keeping the vow to be devoted to him alone. You're not devoted to him. What, what is, where is the devotion? You're just saying, oh, I'm not going to have any, anybody else. But what is really intended there is not there. And, and take the fourth commandment about the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. You observe the day because God, the God you love with all your heart has set that day apart in remembrance of how he created the world. And now after the fall, we celebrate the Sabbath on the first day of the week because he recreated the world in Jesus Christ through redemption. But what if someone keeps that day but with no love for God? What are they like? Well, we might think of the Pharisees. Is it just an empty tradition? Or maybe it's just a day off work. Oh, I really like the Sabbath. I don't have to go to work. But you've got no interest in keeping the day holy to God. See, that kind of commandment keeping is worthless. It does not have the love of God permeating it 
and at the roots of it. I'm sure you've seen people that keep the Sabbath that have absolutely no love for God. It's not a lovely thing at all. It's a very ugly thing. What about the command against stealing? You might keep that commandment outwardly. I mean, you're afraid of getting caught, you know, if you're stealing something and or looking bad before other people, that they'll, they'll look down on you. Or even because in your conscience, you know it's wrong. But it should be done in love. What do we mean by that? It ought to be done out of love for your neighbor that you do not steal. We should be thinking about our neighbor. Why would I deprive my neighbor of something that belongs to them and leave them with, you know, no whatever it is that, that I've somehow weaseled away from them? Because... You want his stuff, you you want him to have his stuff if you love him. You want him to be blessed with his possessions. Instead of stealing from him, you might even give. Then the 10th commandment about covetousness is related. Properly, you're not to covet because you love God and are thankful for what he's given you. For the content with the situation that he has provided you that's best for you from his hand. But it should also be because you love your neighbor and are happy about what your neighbor has. You love him. If you don't love your neighbor, then you're saying, well, why does he have that? Oh, it's more than I have. You know, I, I, don't, like, I don't want him to have more than I have. Why should he have more than I have? That, what is that? That's not love. You can't keep the commandments if love isn't at the core of them. So you see how all the commandments hang With those examples, you see how all the commandments hang on these two commandments. If love doesn't supply them, they don't have a life of their own. Not the right kind of life, at least. Now, let's take a look at these two commandments on which everything depends. First, the great commandment, which Jesus says, is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. To love him in this way means to love him with all that you are. Now, by the way, these things, heart, soul, mind, Sometimes you see heart, soul, mind, and strength. They can be done in different ways. But the whole idea here is it's just every bit of you. That's the idea. You can mix them around however you want. But it's it's with all that you are. Your heart in the Bible refers to the, the inner part of you. In the Bible, the heart is always used to refer to the inside as opposed to the outside. It includes more than just the affections. We use heart like the Valentine heart kind of thing. But in the Bible, it's the inside as opposed to the outside. A person can go through the motions, as you know, when their heart is not in it. So we need to remember that God looks on the heart. See how important this is with all the commandments? And then your soul is is suke, is your life. In other words, you're to lay down your life for God. You are made for him. So you are to actually live for him. Some people would say, oh, well, you know, I have a good heart for God, but I just don't ever do anything for him. Well, that's not a good heart for God. It betrays a bad heart. Uh, You need to be devoted to him with your life. And then your mind refers to the thinking part of you. You're to love God in the way you think how you look at things, and how you understand things. There's a, a, a loving God way of looking at uh, the things that you're studying. You know how wrong our thinking can be, how twisted or how bitter we can be. You even know what it is like to struggle with hard thoughts toward God for what he has done or what he has not done. You, you're not loving him 
with your mind. Sometimes we'll have something that, that we don't like, and so then we'll pervert what is true in our minds. We'll twist it around and try to change it. We're not loving God then with our mind. So our whole being. Now, just what is it to love God? Well, there are many ways to define it. We might simply say that it is your entire being going for or being for God. In other words, you are for God rather than against Him. That's kind of a simple way of understanding love. And you're to do that in every way. You want Him to get the honor that belongs to Him as God. You're for Him. Uh, And you rejoice when He does get it. You want to know Him and to promote Him in His glory. And you do promote Him. You want to do what pleases Him. And you do what pleases him. That's really, in brief, what it is to love God. Now, the second commandment is very similar, only now the object of your love is love for your neighbor who is made in God's image. Which is a fundamental way. Loving God always comes first. You love your neighbor because your neighbor is made in God's image. To love your neighbor, though, means the same thing. That you are to be for your neighbor rather than against your neighbor. You want to see good come to your neighbor. You want him to be good. You do what you can to bring good to him. It doesn't mean that if he's someone wicked that you promote him in his wickedness and provide for him to do more wickedness. In fact, you might even be called, especially if you're a civil magistrate or something, you might be called to even... Uh, bring execution to, to pronounce a sentence of execution if you're a judge against that person. But you still would desire to see that person repent. Jesus says that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some people object to that standard because they say, well, what if I don't love myself? Well, there's a way that you can hate yourself, to be sure. You can be very displeased with your ability, with your successes with your situation. You can even be displeased with your character as you continue to have moral failings and things like that. But back of all that, there is actually a deep self-love. And we all have it. That's why it's a good standard. Let me ask you something. If you hate someone, if you really hate someone, are you displeased when they fail? Are you displeased when they lack ability to do what they need to do? Are you displeased when everything is going wrong with that person, if you hate them? Of course not. You're happy when that happens to someone that you hate. But you're not happy when it happens to you. (laughs) People that say they hate themselves, they should be really happy when everything's going wrong. You know, when they can't do anything, when they can't succeed, when they don't have the resources that they need. Wow, that should make you really, really happy if you hate yourself. That's what you want for your real enemy. So you can understand how this is a good standard. We can see, we know that people will have self-destructive behavior and, and all that kind of thing. And so, of course, we're not talking about that kind of behavior. But what's at the core of that? There's a self-love at the core of that for other people It's a hatred when you do things that destroy them. You're trying to avoid something. You're trying to get out of something. You're expressing your displeasure. 
It's, 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 a, it's a selfish thing. Suicide is a very selfish thing. It's a very self-loving thing. You're trying to get out of a life that you don't like and you don't care how that affects other people. If you had some measure of commitment, the same measure of commitment for the well-being of others that you have for yourself, then you, we'd all be very different people. <laughs> Believe me. So we're to love God with all and our neighbors ourselves. That's the standard. Before we move on to look more at this love, I want to point out to you that you are to love God more than you love your neighbor. I mentioned before that there's an order to this. You are to love your neighbor as you love yourself, but you are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If it ever comes down to a choice between being for God or being for your neighbor, then you are, of course, to be for God. And that always goes. This is only just because God is the creator of all and he has the authority and uh, he is blessing in himself. He is altogether lovely and righteous, so we're to love him supremely. So I trust you can see what an important thing love is. It is the root and the trunk of all proper living. It is to inspire Love is to inspire and to fuel whatever you do. If our obedience to the Ten Commandments is not permeated and motivated by love, then it is not true obedience. Because love is so important to our living, I want to take some time to explore love a little bit farther. So please turn to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. We'll now take some time to consider what 1 Corinthians 13 has to say about love. First of all, it tells you much of what I was just saying, that no matter what you do, there is nothing virtuous about you if it is not rooted in love, unless you have love. Remember, you love when you are truly for God and for others in both heart and action. So without love, you're nothing, even if you have the most amazing spiritual gifts. Verse 1 and 2 spell this out fully. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now the gift of tongues was prized by the Corinthians. Paul told them that prophecy was even more important than tongues. And faith, as mentioned here, is not saving faith, but the faith mentioned here is the miracle working faith. It was in the early church. But even if you have all of these gifts to the highest degree, If you're not for God and for others, if you do not love God and love others, then you are nothing. I was talking to my boys this morning when we were riding over about the danger of being a teacher or a preacher. You can be gifted as a preacher or teacher and you can mix that up with that you're loving people because you're teaching and preaching. That's not the same thing. You can do that. And you can even do it well and not have love. 
And there are certain types of gifts that we have that are easy to carry out and not have love. Are we for people or are we not? Are we for God or are we not? Now, the second thing he says here in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that without love, you are nothing even if you give everything you have to the poor. Verse 3 says, And though I bestow, note, all my goods to feed the poor, it profits me nothing. The language here suggests a person who gives also many small gifts. Morsels is the idea here to many people. So this isn't a person that just does a one-time gift. This is a person that's just always generous, giving, 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 giving to everyone around them. But to our surprise, this can be done without love. Perhaps you're not really for the people that you're helping, but you're, you're only trying to make a show. Jesus talks about that, giving alms to be seen by others. Or perhaps you're for them in a way, but against God. You ever met people like that? They hate God. And so they go out and they give things to people all the time to try to bring comfort to them and because they feel that God is such an awful God who's treating them so badly, they want to bring relief to them. And they're all zealous and passionate to try to help people but as a person who hates God. They hate Him for having a world that has suffering and poverty in it. And they try to dispel all that, shaking their fist at God. The question when you give charity to others is this, do you really love the person that you give to? And do you really love God? Third, we're told that without love, even giving your life as a martyr is worthless. Verse 3, And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. It's possible to be devoted enough to a cause to die for that cause, and yet not to have love for either God or for others. Perhaps it's just that you don't want to seem as one who is cowardly. Perhaps you delight in being admired. Perhaps you simply hate your persecutors and would rather die than submit to them. I remember meeting a man that had fled from persecution and his family had been persecuted. He was, he was from Africa, from Sudan. And, you know, I, I had a great admiration from him, for him when I was meeting this guy that, you know, had, had been persecuted like that. And then after I got to know him, I found that he had no love for God. He was a Christian but it was more of a cultural identity with Christ than a personal identity. And these people are against my people. And so the people that were persecuting are against my people and my people. And he, he had no love for God. And he ended up coming here and becoming a wastrel with his whole life. Just very immoral and uh, corrupt. Maybe you're like the suicide bombers who suppose that they're giving, giving them their life for God that when in fact they're filled with contempt and hatred for the true God. The point is, there is no virtue in anything you do if you have not love. It's the root in the trunk. Love is the root in the trunk. 1 Corinthians 13 goes on to show us some of the characteristics of real love. First, it says that it suffers long. That means that you keep on loving even those when you're 
even when those you're doing things for hurt you. Perhaps they are not appreciating you. Love will not stop because of that. You are still for them. Perhaps they are deliberately trying to harm you. Your love, if it is real, endures. David is a tremendous example of this kind of love in the scriptures with King Saul, his love for King Saul. Even though Saul was pursuing David and trying to kill him, David prayed for Saul and he sought to do him good and he would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He refused to retaliate. His love suffered long. For years, Saul was pursuing him. For years, David loved Saul. Second, it says that love is kind. Love expresses itself in kind words and kind actions that are for the good and the happiness of others. Love goes out of its way as God did in sending Jesus because it cares for others. And love will even do things like Jesus did when others are displeased with you if it is the thing that is good for others. Like when he went to the cross, even when none of his disciples wanted him to, it was the last thing they wanted. But he knew that it was what was needed for their sake. Third, it says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not envy. Of course not. When you're for somebody, you're not grieved when they do well or when they prosper and receive good things. I have been seeing more and more that in our world, sometimes when people have envy for the rich, that it's not even that they want their riches. They just don't want anybody to have the riches. They want to, they want to claw it all away, that no one should have riches. They, they're, it's it's a, a very bitter way of living. Instead of resenting it, you should rejoice because you are for them. Now, the time you might not rejoice is if you can see that their riches are actually doing them harm. But then it's not because of envy, but it's rather because of care. Fourth, it says that love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Parading yourself means that you're showing off. You're focused on your achievements, your physical appearance. Whatever it is, you want to be recognized. Puffed up is related because it means that you're full of yourself, swollen with pride. Parading is the outward expression of being puffed up. Now, this is not always in a boasting way either. You can parade yourself as a victim too. That's become very popular today. The idea is that you're so important that you're front and center. The problem is that you're so important that in your own mind that everyone ought to notice you and your plight. You're focused on your own concerns. You're not focused on the concerns of others. Parading can be as simple as interrupting others or refusing to let them get a word in, or not paying attention to what they say. Why? Because in your own mind, what you have to say is so much more important than what they have to say. Fifth, this chapter says that love does not behave rudely. Societies have norms for behavior, And a rude person does not treat others in accordance with those norms in as much as they're right norms. You don't pay attention to how your actions affect other people. Or you say things that are upsetting or hurtful to them 
when there is no reason to do so, simply because you don't care about other people. Six, love does not seek its own. What we call looking out for number one. Living for self-interest instead of for God and for others. The person who loves considers the needs of others and seeks to bless others. The needs of others are as important to that person as their own needs. Like our Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life to meet the needs of others. Seventh, love is not provoked. This is about being touchy. Someone makes a comment that you don't like and you're touched off and you snap at them. Or maybe you have the other style where you clam up and won't speak to them, turn your face away. That's not love. Love is not provoked. Love is for others, not against them. Related to this is the eighth thing, that love thinks no evil. That is, it does not harbor injuries. You know how people will bear a grudge. What does a bitter person do? He keeps meditating on rehearsing the wrongs that have been done to him. You met people like that. They can tell you all about the wrongs because they, they think about it all the time. They, that's, they focus on it. Play it over and over in your mind and you embellish it over the years. I tell you, you should take that soundtrack out and you should put another one in. And the one that you put in should be that you meditate on the love of God and, and the things that he has done for you in Christ. You end up with a heart of malice and, and bitter hatred if you meditate on the wrongs. You get all kinds of distortions in your character and your behavior. It ruins you. I read a, a, a really good book by a guy that had a lot of abuse when he was growing up. And uh, he told about how he became, he got involved in crime and all sorts of things. And then uh, later he became a believer. And it completely changed his way of thinking. Ninth verse 6 says that love does not rejoice in or with iniquity, but rejoices in or with the truth. This is important for us to hear because we live in a day where tolerance, the idea of tolerance is misunderstood. When you love someone, you don't rejoice if they pull off a murder without getting caught. You don't say, well, you know, I, uh, I, I, I'm for this other person. And, you know, they were, they were trying to kill a couple people that they didn't like. And they were successful. So since I'm for them, I'm cheering because they, they, they murdered these other people. No, love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. You are for the person, not in the sense of wanting them to get away with murder, but in the sense of wanting them to be all that God has called them to be. Not a murderer, but a godly person. So if someone is living in sexual sin of any kind, even if they're very happy in their situation, you don't say, oh, I'm so happy for you. No, you're not happy for someone that's living in rebellion against God. You lament, not because you hate them, say, oh, I don't want them to be happy, but because you love them and you care that they're living against the truth that, and you know that what is against the truth is going to perish. You know that it's going to bring harm and destruction. Truth endures forever, but happiness in sin will cause them to crash. 
If you love, you will be glad, as John says, when you see that people are walking in the truth. And when John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth, you know then that they will be richly blessed, even if you're persecuted. And that makes you very glad because you love them. Sometimes um, as elders, we'll see someone that's, you know, that's on the brink, they're drifting away, and they're not, they're not really set in God's ways. And then they turn back to the truth. And there's a joy. So-and-so has turned. They've come back. They're, they're, they're in the way now. They're, they're, they're walking in the way of the Lord again. And it, it's, it brings such a, a lifting, such a, such a joy, rejoicing, not in iniquity, but rejoicing in the truth. Tenth, love bears or covers all things. The word cover means to cover the way that a roof does, that it protects something. This is the picture of a loving mother covering her children with her body in a storm or a man covering his wife in an attack to to protect her. You take bullets and punches and insults for others. You see harm coming to another person and you bear the loss. You cover them at your own expense. That kind of thing. Eleventh, love believes all things and hopes all things. You don't look at the failure of another as final. You keep believing that God's grace can lift them up again, even when they have given up. And you endeavor to help them. It's very important. Sometimes someone coming alongside and talking about the promises of God and the way God's grace works can take a person who is ready to despair and give up and and restore them. When we put someone out of the church, we don't give up on them. You know, I, I sometimes make it a practice to call or email or whatever some of the people that we have had to remove from the congregation in the past and to ask them, you know, have you come back to the Lord? How are you doing? If you think, do you ever think about the Lord? We know that Christ can restore them and we need to keep on praying and yearning and doing what we can. And then 12th, it says that love endures all things. Love is often very costly. But that does not stop love. When you love, you keep on going for others despite tiredness, despite trouble, despite opposition. This is so rare. If someone is unjustly charged at at work, it is a very rare individual that's willing to stand with them and defend them. Because, well, I'll get in trouble too, even if they didn't do wrong. Paul says that he endured all things for the sake of the elect. Beatings imprisonment, ridicule, nothing could stop Paul because he loved. He knew that Jesus had endured far more than he would ever endure. That's what love does. Love corrects children when it is tired because it loves. It washes dishes when it would rather go and sit down. These are characteristics of love. This is the way that you behave when you are for others. Love is God's will for us. God is love. Love is beautiful. And so we're told that love never fails. That is, it doesn't drop away. It continues forever. You can see where it says that in verse 8. Prophecies and tongues were not to continue. They were just around until the revelation of concerning Christ was completed by the apostles. But love was to keep on. 
In fact, love even continues into eternity because God is love. In, the, in this way, this is the way of his household. It always has been, and it always will be the way of his household. So as John tells us in his writings, if you're adopted into God's family, you love because God is love, and you will share in the glory of love in heaven forever. This is what we human beings were created to do before we fell. Yet now, in Christ, love is what we have been redeemed to do. Christ redeemed you so that you can be whole. And being whole is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This teaching about love being the summary of all that we are to be is very helpful for us. Let's look at a few ways that it's helpful. It is helpful for guidance. It gives you a focus on what you're to do in every situation. To love God and to love your neighbor. It keeps you from misusing the Ten Commandments, from falling into a false keeping of them that's devoid of love. Set this standard before you ask God to so work in you that, that you will love. You know, ask Him to in, enable you. It's, you have this guidance. You, you have this standard to reach. Examine yourself and see if you love. And examine your obedience of God's commandments to see if that obedience is actually rooted in love. And inasmuch as it is not, keep on going to Christ for forgiveness and for the Holy Spirit's help. You are to be filled with love. That's the standard that's set here. This teaching about love is also helpful for admiration and praise of God. We ought to praise God for giving us such righteous commandments, such a beautiful holy law. It's not like the false gods who are content with payments or outward service. The true God is looking for our love with, from our whole being and wants us to love each other. When we consider that he calls upon us to love, let us reflect on how great his love is. Jesus continually spoke of the love of the Father when he was here. And he spoke of his love for the Father. This is the beauty of the divine nature. To love and to delight in love. Let us praise our God and rejoice in who he is. Let us admire him for his love. And then finally, a way that this teaching is helpful is because it gives us hope and joy. What a beautiful place heaven must be. Jonathan Edwards described it as a world of perfect love. That's what we have to look forward to. If that is where we're headed, then we should begin to do that more and more now. What happiness is waiting for us? Until then... Also, recognize, you say, well, the world we live in now isn't a very loving place. That's true enough. But you have a special opportunity, as long as you're in this world, that you'll never have again. And do you know what that is? You'll never have this in heaven. We have the opportunity to love in a fallen world where we must suffer and sacrifice as Jesus did in order to love. How was Jesus' love demonstrated? How was God's love demonstrated? In that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. You won't have that opportunity in glory anymore. So make the most of that opportunity. Let us do it most cheerfully for his honor and glory who set the pace for us in his sufferings on the cross. We don't have very long here. 
So let's make the most of the opportunity for his glory to love him who first loved us, to love our neighbor as he has loved us and given himself for us. That's what God calls us to do. And God will help you to do that. Please stand and let's ask him for that help. Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving that you are a God who has appointed love for us. That this is what you desire for your people. This is what you have and what you desire. And we know, Lord, that this is a very wonderful standard that we ought to be very glad that it is your standard. You don't tell us that we have to do some bizarre rituals or something like that. But the fundamental thing that you want from us is love for you and love for others. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed help us to grow into that standard, that we would see that love is the root and the, and the trunk of everything that we do. Father, that we wouldn't have a bunch of things on another tree than the tree of love, that everything that we do would grow out of that love for you. Father, we pray that you would give us grace that we might examine ourselves and see how we need to change. We may even have behavior that other people admire, but that is not at all warranted to be admired, that that doesn't have virtue in it. We hear the words of, of 1 Corinthians 13 that we can have all kinds of gifts that we're exercising and not have a, a bit of love. Or we can have we can give all that we have to to the poor and not have any love. Lord, we pray then that you would be merciful to us and that you would forgive us, Lord, for our shortcomings, for our sin, and that you would help us more and more to put off the old man and to put on the new man that is renewed in the image of him who created us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's sing a song. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.